0: Welcome to the dividing line. My name is James White. I start off with something a little bit uh, <clears throat> fun today before we get to all the serious stuff. We do have a fair amount of serious stuff um, to get to, as seems to be normal these days. I had thought maybe about doing open phones or something today, and then, uh, yeah, lots of stuff happened. And so we're going <clears> to <throat> do the best we can to uh, once again provide you with uh, important information. Um. Uh, what was it? A couple of days ago, uh, someone took a shot at John Cooper on, uh, on Twitter, and I uh, came to my friend's defense. Um, most of you know that uh, I am not making things up when I call myself Skillet's official theologian, because I really am. Um, and uh, John and I are good friends, and we communicate a lot. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for him, but he's not the only person in the band I know. I mean, obviously, if you know John, you know Corey. and um <clears throat> know that uh corey is like scary, smart, and ca- scary, strong, and scary little <laughs> but but uh, pound for pound don't take don't, don't don't take that lady on um but so sweet, she's Auntie corey to my grandkids, uh who got to meet her last year and and We have all sorts of fun stories about that and pictures and things like that. Uh, And, of course, Jen is so sweet and uh, so talented. And then there's the quiet guy. He's the quiet guy, Seth, um, who shreds the guitar. If you've not seen uh, Seth do his guitar playthrough on Dominion, uh, put Seth Morrison, Dominion, Skillet, whatever, in uh, YouTube, and it'll come up. And uh, that's a whole lot fun to watch, especially the guitar solo halfway through Dominion. It's really neat. Anyway, I knew about the album coming out long before it came out, of course. And uh, John had mentioned to me uh, months and months ago uh, that he was writing a song that was sort of dedicated to Joe Boot and myself, uh, Joe Boot, the author of The Mission of God, um, as well as uh do i have it over there yeah but i can't reach it uh, ruler of kings which i've talked about <clears throat> actually i've got two copies there oh anyway still can't get to either one of them <laughs> piled under the books um and uh so i knew a little bit about what was going on with dominion the the album and stuff like that well at some point seth contacted me and he says you know i work with uh You know, he's a guitarist, and look, the only instrument I've actually been trained on is a guitar, but it it was an acoustic standard, might have cost $65. (laughs) Well, in the 1980s, that was not a bad guitar. Um, And um, I think I took a year in high school. It might have been two, but I think it was just one. I think it was my senior year. I know I was sitting in guitar class. When the vice principal came on and told us that Reagan had been shot. I do remember that clearly. It's amazing how that, that works. So that was nineteen eighty one, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah, eighty-one. Yeah, so that would have been my final semester. So yeah, it's my senior year. I was in guitar class when that happened. Uh but that's all I that's all I ever played. I only played it for a little while afterwards. Um it did not have a plug for anything. It had, there was nothing electrical about it. Um, and so I don't know about <clears throat> pedals and distortion and stuff like that. I That's that's beyond me. Um, I've noticed recently that Elliot at church during, I think, the Lord's, the, the, the instrumental before, while we're doing the Lord's Supper, because it takes us a long time to do the Lord's Supper, At Apologia, um, because we do it differently. Uh, A lot faster if you have a bunch of guys running down the aisles, passing stuff out. A lot slower when you got people coming forward. Um, He's been doing something, I think, with a pedal type thing that sort of keeps the same. It's like a hum, but it's a it's a certain key or something to what he's playing or something. I, I don't know. I don't know how any of it works. But Seth contacted me, and he said, Hey, um, what about the text in Revelation chapter 1? I think it's Revelation chapter 1. That uses the term dominion. Uh, Was it Revelation chapter 1? I should have brought it up. I've got so much stuff on my screen right now, I can't keep track of all of it. Anyway, um, he asked me to look up a passage in Revelation, and to provide him with what the Greek text looked like. And I said... Well, you know what, you know where it looks really neat is when it's in unsealed text. The majuscule text is more technically correct. Um, but the, the all-caps form of the Greek text, especially in like Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrinus. Um, and I think I even sent him initially maybe some of the papyri, what it would have looked like in the py- papyri. I don't think we have a papyri of that particular text. <clears throat> but I have those on my on my unit, on my system. Anyways, um, I I helped him. I said, "Here's here's where Dominion appears, and here's the what's in front of it and below it, as far as there in the text in Revelation." And I provided that to him. Well, I've sort of been watching. You'll notice you can't really see it. Um. So you've got Westminster Effects. That's the group that he's working with, and. Well, yeah, you can see it, but but see if you look behind it, can you see the whoop, Greek right there? See, see, there's there's Greek in the background. Okay, and so they sent me a pedal. Now, I don't know what these things cost. Those those guys, those you guys out there that do this kind of stuff, you you will recognize what this is and does. It's got gain, presence, volume, bass, middle, treble. And it's got two things. And uh, I suppose that's use your foot to do that, I guess. I don't know. <clears throat> and there's another thing over here. That's probably power, I would assume. But um, anyway, I don't... You can't... Okay, right there. Wait a minute. Uh, no, I had... It. There. See what's all on the front? Behind the, behind the, the, the buttons and everything. Is the unsealed Greek text that includes the, the phrase dominion in regards to Christ from the book of revelation. And it's, I can tell you, I'm, I'm touching it. It's raised. You can, you can feel it on the, on the metal. It really, really looks cool. Um, and uh, so they came out with this uh, working with Seth. There you go. Neat. Um, so if you're what, then the other camera, Uh, yeah, you see, I can, I can get the light to reflect off of it. So you can see in the background right there. There you go. See, there's the, and I I can assure you the Greek text is correct. (laughs) I don't don't know how how many guitar players know the, the Greek text is correct. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually looking at it right there. Um. There's there's a uh, glory uh, right there and yeah it's really cool. So uh, thank you uh Seth for sending me one of these. I... Chris says send it over to him and he'll put it to work. <laughs> I was going to say I'm we're probably going to have a bunch of people offering to help me. Yeah, I'll 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 show you how to use it. Just send it on to me. Um you don't get the t-shirt, I get to keep the t-shirt. But uh yeah, I will I will probably find someone who can actually press it into service um, and utilize it to the glory of God. Um, but I'll probably talk to Elliot about that first, see what Elliot thinks, because uh, he's our, our music guy. Um, or Mike, Mike Hendrickson. That, oh, that's what I've got to do. That's what I've got to do. Because, see, Mike Hendrickson's kids, they're the ones that do those incredible covers of Skillet songs. Uh, he's, the, he's the incredible drummer, and she's the uh, the guitarist. And, uh, I'll have to, yeah, mm-hmm, 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 yeah, <laughs> there's, ding, ding, ding. there's the thought, uh, I'll, I'll let, I'll let her and Elliot, a uh, thumb, thumb battle. <laughs> that's, that's what we do on that I, one. I, I'm but getting texts from people who are getting in line. They're getting in line? <laughs> <laughs> me first. Me, me, one. me. I only got the one. Come on. Come uh, on. Look up Westminster Effects. Get your own. Uh if you want the the coolest one out there, then then go for it. So uh so there you go. I I told uh, uh I, you know I, I said months ago, I said, Seth, you know, uh you get the if this all works out for you, let me know. We'll we'll let folks know that it's out there. And uh so that's um free advertising, we charge nothing for it except I get the shirt. So there you go. And uh and Rich Rich is sitting there g- going you got nothing. <laughs> got nothing, man. Got nothing. <laughs> hey, you didn't even know I was going to do that. So what are you talking about? Did you, did you find any Greek text for them? Huh? Did you? No, I don't tell you this things. <laughs> uh, yes, well. <clears throat> anyway. Look, uh, one of the biggest stories that I've seen in a long time uh, broke on the 29th, and we haven't even talked about it. And other stuff has gotten in the way, and I apologize for that. And maybe I just haven't been uh, prioritizing things uh, appropriately. But it didn't get much much play. We don't have much in the way of media any longer. We don't have a press. We don't, we don't have very many who do serious journalism anymore. It's a it's a sad thing. But and I've, let, let me see if. If you even heard of this cuz I'm not sure I even mentioned it to you or put it in the in anything where you would have seen it. But uh did you know that uh Nancy Pelosi went to to the Vatican last week? Okay, so I did tweet about. Okay. Because I cuz because cause I tweeted it. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's the sad thing. Nancy Pelosi went to the Vatican um and you need to remember that Pelosi's bishop um, has excluded her from receiving the Mass, the Eucharist in the Mass. um, Because of her unrepentance, she will not repent of promoting, specifically, the murder of unborn children. Now, the reality is, Uh, that she won't repent of promoting the profaning of marriage, um, homosexuality, uh, transgenderism, and any other host of rabidly anti-Christian beliefs and actions that she is completely committed to. Um, She will not repent of these things. And so someone finally had the courage to stand up and say you're excluded. You're, you're, you're not a Roman Catholic and she's not obviously. I mean, um, this should have been done 30 years ago. I can, I can guarantee every Roman Catholic in the audience that if there was a individual in our church fellowship that was involved in publicly promoting Um, the murder of unborn children up to the point of death, uh, transgenderism, homosexuality, the profaning of marriage, it would not take us 30 years to deal with it. It might take 30 minutes for us to deal with that. No question about it. But there have been multiple popes and multiple bishops and multiple archbishops and multiple cardinals and everybody else who has been well aware of Pelosi's public promotion of these types of things have done absolutely positively nothing about it. And so finally somebody had the guts to stand up and say no more. So she goes to the Vatican. Quote, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi received Holy Communion during a Wednesday Mass at the Vatican despite her unwavering support for abortion rights. Pope, Francis presided over the morning Mass, which marked the Feasts of St. Peter and St. Paul, both of whom would have a cow. Francis bestowed the woolen pallium stole on several newly consecrated archbishops. Pelosi was seated in a VIP diplomatic section where she joined the communion with the other congregants, two witnesses the Mass said, according to the Associated Press. Pelosi also met with Francis that same day. Pelosi was previously barred from receiving communion by Archbishop of San Francisco Salvatore Carleone due to her stance on abortion. In a letter published in May, Carleone wrote that Pelosi should not present herself at Mass and said that priests would not allow her to receive communion if she did attend. So, first of all, how do you absolutely cut um, this bishop off at the knees? Well, you wait until he publicly says she can't have mass there in San Francisco and you need to give it to her at the Vatican. I, I mean, talk about a slap in the face. Talk about a slap in the face. But here is the ostensibly infallible vicar of Christ. Evidently, in Roman Catholicism, actions do not speak louder than words. Because as long as he doesn't say, I define and, and pronounce and so on and so forth, then he can do whatever he wants. His actions can communicate anything. He can put the little kid on his knee and tell him his atheist daddy's going to heaven, but as long as he doesn't say that with the certain magic words, then you can still believe in papal infallibility. I've said over and over again, when Rome gets serious about getting rid of the myriad of heretics in its leadership, in its schools, um, that (laughs) the myriad of heretics on the papal biblical commission that were put there by the papal guy um then okay then we can we can start talking seriously about something but till then it's just like why even bother you don't you don't you don't take this stuff seriously why should i take it why should i take your claims seriously when you don't take them seriously at all that's not make a lick of sense and with such a wicked woman this woman is unrepentant have you seen her Do you listen to her? Do you know what she has done? Do you know how many innocent human lives have been snuffed out directly because this woman has been given power? I cannot imagine the judgment. I cannot imagine the judgment. I just can't. It's just... But there you go. Um, I think Francis's actions speak much more loudly than his words, and tell us all we need to know about where he is theologically. And once again, we just... You look back in history, and you, you see what happened to Honorius based on a letter that he wrote to his counterpart in the East which led to his being anathematized by every single person who took this chair of Peter for 400 years as a heretic. But they're still infallible. And you wonder why people who are serious about history and deep in history just look at your claims and go, you really don't believe that. And the vast majority of the Roman leadership doesn't. But they pretend like they do. So, pretty amazing, pretty amazing stuff. Um, A lot of stuff has been appearing on the web that is uh, very relevant. If you have uh, read over the years uh, The Forgotten Trinity, you know that I addressed the issue of John chapter fourteen verse twenty eight in that book you can't you can't address doctrine of the trinity without dealing with many of the um texts that are utilized by those who deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And you know that uh Jehovah's Witnesses and to a somewhat lesser extent Mormons uh have john have the last uh one two, three four five six last six words in Greek of john fourteen twenty eight memorized I have a few times asked someone if they could tell me what the rest of the verse says, <laughs> and no one ever could so uh, that is a i think cogent observation when when speaking with people. But you've you've heard said, the father is greater than I am. The father is greater than I am. Now, that's the end of a sentence, and I hope no one in this audience who's listened for any period of time at all would ever let anyone, myself included, get away with uh, making a point based upon the last few words of a sentence without looking at the context of what that sentence actually is. But it is a well-known text, and it... And, obviously requires anyone to think seriously about what it's saying. I have, again, emphasized since the day it was drilled in my head, I remember which room it was. I don't think the room exists anymore. I think they finally tore that building down. I don't think there are any single-story buildings left on the campus of Grand Canyon University. Uh, they've, they're all, you know, multi-story things now. Yeah, um, But I, I remember I was exactly what room I was sitting in in the Fleming, not not Fleming, um, Tell Science building. Tell Science building. And I was reading um, Son of God, Lord of Glory. No, no, just Lord of Glory. I think it's just Lord of Glory by B.B. Warfield. And I remember the page. I'm sure if I went in the other room, found the book, there would be a very yellowed, faded marking of that specific page in my old, old version, paperback version of that little book. I still highly recommend it to people. And it's where Warfield made the argument that we very often fail to see the, the breadth of the testimony of the New Testament to the deity of Christ. And instead, we we allow ourselves to be always put on the defensive rather than demanding of the other side, whether it's Jehovah's Witness or a Oneness person or a Mormon or any type of Unitarian or whatever, demanding that they make an account for everything that the New Testament says about Jesus, because there's just so much that if Jesus is what they say he is, makes no sense at all. I often use Jehovah's Witnesses in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, baptizing them in the name of Jehovah God, Michael the Archangel, and an impersonal act of force. That's, That's how they understand that text. They are rarely forced to think through that. We've got to do that. But... We let everybody force us to always be giving an answer for every text they bring up, but we don't turn that around and do what Warfield did and said, look at all these other areas of evidence of the deity of Christ that almost never get discussed. He says all these things that could never be said by a mere by a mere creature. And we we don't see it because we already know who Jesus is. And so when we read Jesus speaking, we're Plugging what he's saying into a a greater biblical context. And so, because of that when I wrote the Forgotten, Forgotten Trinity and I and I got to John 1428, I pointed out that in reality, John fourteen twenty eight is on our side, as you would expect it to be. What do I mean? It's in the context of, of Jesus having announced that he's he's going back to the Father. He's going back to the Father. So right in that language, you have, this is the Son who has been sent forth from the Father. This is the Logos who has taken on flesh. Um, This is the Logos who has become present amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only God and the Father. Um, But he's going to go back, which means a, a transition From his humiliated state here amongst us, constantly dealing with the Jews trying to trip him up and false accusations and um, healing till late at night and walking the dusty roads of Galilee. So he's in his humiliated state, but he's going to go back into the presence of the Father. And he has announced this, and this is part of John 14, 15, 16, the announcement of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we get so much information about Father, Son, and Spirit from this particular portion of the Gospel of John. But the rest of the verse says, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, if you loved me... you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I am. You see what's being said? I, I just said to you, I go away and I will come to you. So there's, there's going to be a change in their relationship. He's going to go away, but he's going to come to them but by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be... Father... And I will make our abode with them when the Spirit comes and dwells within them. And so there is a subtle rebuke in these words. If you loved me, if you weren't so focused upon what we could do without Jesus. what? No, we don't. And, and, of course, all of their expectations of what the Messianic kingdom is supposed to look like and how they're going to reign with Jesus and all the rest of that kind of stuff is probably in the back of their minds. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Because the Father is greater than I. So if you loved me, you know that I am in my humiliated state. And I'm going back into the presence of the Father, the presence that I had with him before the world was. And we're going to see in just a matter of paragraphs in John chapter 17 what that looks like in John 17, 5. That description that Jesus himself gives of having been glorious in the presence of the Father before the world was. So the whole point that is being brought out here and presented is that is not that the father is greater than I am. I am uh, ontologically inferior to the father. The father is superior to me, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what he's saying. He's going back to the father. The father's not incarnate. The father's not walking the dusty roads of 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 Jerusalem, he's not constantly being trying, trying people trying to trip him up. He's not being falsely accused of things. He is in heaven, and that means if the son goes back there, he's going back to where he was before, the place where he is worshipped and honored, as John chapter five had said, honoring the son even as he honored the father. So the statement at the end of Verse 28 is transparently in light of what it says in the same sentence about the incarnate state of the Son. You would have, if you loved me, you would rejoice. I'm going back to the Father. So the the text is clear. And you you don't have to make, um, you don't have to make appeal to, other stuff. You don't have to get into philosophy and 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 councils. Or, it's, the text is right there. And most people know that when you are dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses, that's where you have to be. That's the only thing that's going to communicate to them. They really don't care what Athanasius said. Now, I care about it what Athanasius said. It, it causes my heart Joy, I've said this many times, that reading Athanasius against the Arians is enjoyable and encouraging to me for the simple reason that here I see someone from the middle of the 4th century utilizing the same texts in defense of the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity as I use today. I sort of wonder if, in fact, there was some continuous necessary development um, that didn't end until the 13th century. How that even fits with this, I'll be honest with you because Athanasius is way too early. There's still a whole lot of stuff to be developed, right? But anyway. So uh, Michael Haken had um, posted this. Let me take this stop. There. Michael Haken had posted, and it was uh, sent to me, on interpreting texts like John 14, 28 and listening to the Father's, one of the reasons why we evangelicals need the fathers of the ancient church is their exegetical uh, is their exegetical defense of the true and living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Over the course of 350 years, yes, a century longer than the entire history of the United States as a nation, from Ignatius of Antioch to the Chalcedonian Fathers, these authors hammered out a grammar of how to understand all that God has said in his word regarding himself. It seems to me like Haken is saying that that development pretty much concluded with Chalcedon. That's, that's certainly been how I've used, viewed it. Um, when I say development, I mean development of the language to answer a certain set of questions within a certain context. The questions asked the Doctrine of the Trinity in the East, the questions asked the Doctrine of the Trinity in the East, 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 So, you've got the East, historically, and then, and most people just don't even know about this, there there was a church to the East of the East, for a while, flourished, disappeared suddenly, and it's a mystery as to why. But the, the things that they would have been facing, the challenges they would have been facing, and the questions they would have been facing, would be very different. And unfortunately, we in the West... We have tunnel vision, and it's only the issues that we are used to debating about that we think much about. And I, again, I recognize that in myself, and I think everybody needs to recognize that that's reality. Um, But it sounds like that's what's being said, what I've said. Um, They literally gave their lives to this endeavor, for they knew that God was worth every minute of their reflection and every ounce of their sacrifice. And certainly, uh, when you think about the Council Fathers at Nicaea, that's one of the reasons I've always laughed at the idea that the, count, the, the bishops who met at Nicaea would have just been so awed by Constantine that they just would have done, you know, some people say, well, Constantine came up with this term Homoousius, and they just simply did whatever Constantine said. It had only been 12 years since those men had been willing to die for their faith, the, the most intense period of imperial persecution was 303 to 313. Now we're talking 325. It was only 12 years earlier. You really think that in that 12 years, they all just became, became marshmallows? And whatever Constantine said, that's what I'm going to believe. Baloney. Um, so when they read John fourteen twenty eight, the father is greater than I, Exegetes of the ancient church, like Athanasius, Didymus the Blind, Epiphanius of, of Salamis, Hilary of Poitiers, Poitier, I love that one, uh, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea, the great Cappadocian fathers, he goes on through, uh, all the way up through uh, Augustine, knew that the referent of this text had to be the incarnate son, not the divine word. For the word, who was homoousios topatriae, eternally homoousios, of the same uh, substance, with the father, could never make such an assertion. Indeed, it was the homoians and Anomoians who employed this verse to argue for the fact that the son, the second person of Godhead, was a creature, albeit a perfect one. Following the lead of Athanasius, these Greek, Latin, and Syriac authors knew that the scapas, scope, range, of scriptures, allowed for no other interpretation, evangelicals would be wise to take such men as their mentors. Um, Again, uh, I'm going to be the last person in the world, I haven't been teaching church history since 1990, um, to say to people, you should ignore the early church fathers. Never said anything of the kind. Um... There are, I don't know how many hours of this program have been dedicated to uh, reading from early church fathers or reading from early church heretics, uh, Gnostic stuff and things like that. And and just so much. We've been criticized. I can't, it's, it's amazing today to, to the, the straw men. I'm not saying Dr. Hagen's talking about me or anything, but. Uh, the straw men that are being tossed our direction uh, about uh, just ignoring church history and all the rest of this stuff, and it's like we've been criticized for years for wasting too much time on such things. It's, it's you can't can't win for trying. And so there's a there's an element of truth to what's said here, but the truth of John fourteen twenty eight can be established. In the context of john fourteen twenty eight um, it was true that john fourteen twenty eight was specifically about the incarnate state of the sun from the moment that John penned the words. That was true in the days of Ignatius, even if Ignatius didn't cite the text and explain it. It was still that truth was already there in the text. It does not require and did not require the development of a traditional interpretation. Now, is there value in recognizing the consistency of all of those men that are listed? Sure. But that's simply a consistent recognition of a truth that is just as directly available to you with your English Bible in your hands as it was to any of them with Greek manuscripts in their hands. And so you can see where, 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 where my concern is. It's not just, hey, when you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, a list of those names is going to mean nothing to them. If anything, it's going to um, make it more difficult for you to communicate with them. Uh but if you are able to to go to the text with them, show that you've already thought this through, that you understand what's being said, what the context is, and then point out to them the problem with their own interpretation of that text, and then show them what the consistent interpretation is, and then use that as a as a means for going to another text. Go from there to John seventeen. Um. Or if, if you if you're really thinking ahead and are prepared, you could you could go the Holy Spirit from there because I'm going to tell you something. Jehovah's Witnesses are really struggle with the Spirit because they just think impersonal act of force, and there are so so few Christians who can take them over to Corinthians. The Spirit gives the gifts as He wills. The action of a divine person giving divine gifts to the body. Uh, John 14, John 16, how the Father and the Son make their presence with the people by the Holy Spirit of God. There's there's so many directions you could go from there. And that's exactly what Jehovah's Witnesses need. They they need Christians who can do that. Uh, I remember just a couple of years ago... Uh, before they moved out to Hawaii, before they came back, uh, one of our dear brothers, at Apologia Zach uh, Conover, his wife, I think, recorded started a recording when the Jehovah's Witnesses came to the door, and all it is is a it's a shadow of Zach, and he has this big old beard, so, it's, <laughs> so it's, you can sort of see the beard moving, but, that's, but but you can hear the the conversation really well, and I was just so proud of him. At just how prepared he was. And man, if Jehovah's Witnesses found... Now, they're not going door-to-door as much these days. Um, which really, sadly, is a curse upon them. It really is a curse upon them. Now, it's a blessing upon people that aren't going to be deceived by them, but it's a curse upon them, because that's one of the main re- ways we've reached these folks in the past. But man, when they're going door-to-door, if, if they're running into prepared Christians, right, left, and center... Um, awesome stuff awesome stuff but the point is John 14 28 means that not because um, from Athanasius onward there is a broad traditional interpretation of the text that says the same thing the text says it that broadened Tradition um, is encouraging and is a testimony of the continuing work of the Spirit of God, but that's not why the text means that. The text says that directly, and it it said that the moment it was written. That's, I think, a very important uh, thing to keep in mind. Um, Very, very important aspect of things to keep in mind um okay not sure which one to do first here but i it all it all flows together uh an article was published evidently on um june twenty third in credo magazine now you need to understand uh credo magazine The Davenant Institute, these are names that you need to become familiar with. These are not uh, unbiased uh, sources of information. Uh, These are organizations that have as their stated goals the promotion of a particular theological perspective. And In our current context, it is the theological perspective of Thomism. All things uh, Thomist. And so the most recent issue of the magazine was all about that. All all the reasons why Protestants should be, you know, this should be sitting. Ouch. Now, this is a good brother gave this to me in el paso i can't read that not not without getting my old man glasses out no no way okay now okay i can i can see that now um, yeah it, it it is it's still bigger than the edwards volumes okay uh but i would i would say that's probably Five or six point font, I would say. Uh, So I just happened to open up here. um, Whether gratuitous grace is rightly divided by the apostle, objection one. It would seem that gratuitous grace is not rightly divided by the apostle, for every gift vouchsafed to us by God may be called a gratuitous grace. Now, there are an infinite number of gifts freely bestowed on us by God as regards both the good of the soul and and the good of the body, and yet they do not make us pleasing to God. Hence, gratuitous graces cannot be contained under any certain division. Objection number two. Further gratuitous grace, and it goes on. You've got objection number three, objection number four, and then he responds to each of those um, objections. This is the the essence of the Summa Theologica, um, and it goes on forever. It's huge. It's massive it is big but you need to have yours if if you're going to be look today if you're going to be amongst the cool kids um i would imagine that there are baptists right now who are spending money getting their aquinas library set up that never imagined only a few years ago they were going to be doing that but they are because that's that's how you you be cool today is um is you need to be Plowing through medieval scholasticism, and uh, so an article. Maybe I. Well, I don't. You know, I don't follow Credo, but uh, maybe it just didn't come out till recently or something. But I didn't see it till this morning. From uh, June twenty third, why Protestants have always stood on the shoulders of Thomas Aquinas and still do. David van Drunen. Answers misconceptions today. Doctor Van Drunen, Westminster Seminary in California, PhD from Loyola University, which I think is uh, also where um, Geisler, uh, one of the places that Geisler went. I think he may have taught there for a while too. Anyway, yeah. Um, David Van Drunen answers misconceptions today. Now. One of the things that struck me is I used Evernote's clipping material to put this into my library. And what's interesting is what that does is they have a click to tweet function in their articles. And so you can tweet out these insights you're getting. Now, by the way, This is um, uh, Credo editor Lance English, joined David Vendrunen to deal with these issues. I felt that the article would better be described as an advertisement. It, it would have been better if this article sponsored by and then you had one of the many, 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 many Dominican Thomas Aquinas centers. Because there's they're they're everywhere. They're they're all across the world, not just English speaking world. I think it would have been better if you had just said this is a sponsored advertisement. This is because this is not an article answering questions this is an advertisement seeking to get you to believe something this is a set of arguments based against a pile of burning straw men now here's my little straw man i think i yeah i put it in the other room so he's safe today <laughs> I don't I don't have my, my lighter in here. I, I moved it to the other room, so I normally have a little lighter that I, I put right next to his head. Um makes Rich nervous. But um where who's who sent this to us? You don't think there was a return address on it? Well, I'm gonna tell you something. He's he's getting a workout like I have never seen recently. I've never seen there's an army of these guys. And in this article, three divisions of these guys full of flame are in the background. They the burning straw men everywhere. It's uh it's amazing. And I can prove it, I can document it. Uh I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna he needs to Oh. Hmm. You know, the warp corps might light him up. So we'll, we'll put them up there and see if the warp core does its job. Um, you, know how to, you know how to, I can prove this? Like I said, it's got the click to tweet things. So what do they want you tweeting out? What do they want you promoting to your readers, to the people who read your tweets? Let me just run through them because what's neat is in Evernote, you see they're all underlined in blue. <laughs> they're underlined in blue because they're links. So, uh, here are the click-to-tweet statements from this article. Thomas was undeniably one of the most brilliant and influential theologians of the entire history of the church. So they, want you, they want you to tweet that out. Thomas was undeniably one of the most brilliant and influential theologians of the entire history of the church. Next, click the tweet. Most Protestants, even those with theological training, have read little or none of Thomas. So they, want you, they actually want you to tweet out to people that most Protestants, even those with theological training, have read little or none of Thomas. What, what's the point of that? Well, we've seen it for months now, haven't we? If you dare say anything, about Thomas Aquinas, it's because you are ignorant of Thomas Aquinas. You can't possibly have read. I mean, this is only, this isn't even finished, and this is only one of his books. He wrote millions of words. He died before he reached age 50. He didn't even have a word processor. It's astonishing. But unless you've read all of this and all of Contra Gentiles and, and if you've not if you've got to read his commentary on, on Romans and and his commentary on, on Lombard sentences and and that's just minimally. And yeah, vast majority of us have not done that. And may I just say in passing, I highly recommend that you do not. Life is precious and wasting it in that pursuit would be a real a real shame. I feel for those who have already done that. But there is a there is an argument there. If you disagree, it's because you just you're you're uneducated. You're uneducated. Uh, next one, click the tweet. Many early Protestant theologians studied Thomas, engaged his work respectfully, and often embraced the very positions Thomas defended. You see these are arguments and these are what they want you to hear these are what they want you to believe and to then repeat to others this is an advertisement it's a Thomas Aquinas advertisement in the pages of Credo magazine because that's what Credo magazine is uh, next one Kant played an important role in the development of anti Thomist Protestantism now you need to understand. Uh, central to the new Thomistic revival is the assertion that uh, Van Til and Schaefer, to a much lesser extent, but still same. That's where Schaefer got it, Van Til. That this anti-anti-Thomas Protestantism. Th- think about what that. Think about what that means. Think about what you're doing with Thomas. When you can refer to anti-Thomas Protestantism, you are so elevating Thomas that there is a Protestantism that is simply anti him. He is he's a dividing line. He is well, he's the greatest theologian in the entire history of the Christian Church. I've already, already said that. But Kant played an important role in the development of Thomas Prost. And of course, they will accuse Van Til of just simply being repeating Kant's stuff. He didn't, but the, the accusation is constant. Um, and there is a strong anti-presuppositionalism and anti-Vantilian bent in all this stuff. Fesco has an article in the same, same magazine. Of course, Fesco anti-Vantilian as well. Next one. Next click to tweet. On some on some occasions, Reformed theologians agreed with Thomas over against Roman Catholics. I did have to um, chuckle a little bit at that one, but you can see what, what the argument is about there and what was trying to be established. Next one. Unless we want to say that the church began in the 16th century, which we don't, then we Reformation Christians need to claim the medieval church as our history. So there is an entire historiography and hence an entire understanding of what the Reformation was and was not that is being presented even by the click to tweets in this article. Next one. Turretin regarded Thomas as an important, eminent theologian of the Christian church, worthy of engagement, and didn't just dismiss him as a Roman Catholic. Um, We're going to see what the article says about, the article is literally going to say, there was no Roman Catholic church until the Reformation. So Thomas couldn't have been a Roman Catholic. Um, but one of the straw men, particularly burning bright in the background of the article, is that that's what's anyone who is opposing this new Thomistic wave. Uh, well, you just dismiss Thomas Aquinas because he was a Roman Catholic. That's all. That's just it, it's it's just simplicity. We 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 don't read anything from him. We don't we don't uh, quote from him or anything like that. Have you noticed, by the way? At least I've noticed every time I've quoted from Thomas. Every time I have gone into the into the Summa and. and you know, put quotes, stuff like that. None of those who are constantly subtweeting and responding to this program have ever, ever, not once tried to engage what I said. Not once. I've never seen anything. Haven't even tried. Haven't even acknowledged they did it. It's really weird. And it's really weird for someone who just dismisses him as Roman Catholic. Well, hey, he's just Roman Catholic, so hey, don't have to, don't have to worry about it. Um, click the tweet. Our own Protestant theologians who learned so much from patristic and medieval theologians and built their work standing on their shoulders. That's an argument. That's an argument about the nature of the Reformation. And that's an argument about where we should be today. And it is part of the argument that has been used to view the Reformation as an unfortunate event in church history that is completed and can now be reevaluated. And I think this is the last one. Yes. Last click to tweet. Thomas was a defender of Christian orthodoxy, it's the same orthodoxy that the reformers taught and the great Protestant confessions and catechisms expressed. Do you hear that? Let me repeat it for you. Thomas was a defender of Christian orthodoxy. Now, by the way, let me just, just in passing, um, Thomas engaged in numerous disputations, that was very common in the scholastic period, sometimes taking the minority position, but he did so as a Dominican, There were all sorts of um, battles going on internally, as well as externally. The Dominicans were the heresy hunters. They were the ones going after the heretics, Albigensians, Waldensians, so on and so forth. Um, And he had disputes in his own day. So what is behind this is the idea that Christian orthodoxy is only in reference to Trinitarian theology. Because some of Aquinas' most important works were his works on the subject, for example, of the Eucharist. The sacrifice of the Mass. Um, you know, he wrote in defense of papal authority and all the things associated therewith. And so Christian orthodoxy, according to this, does not include the gospel. The gospel is not included. So Thomas was a defender of Christian orthodoxy. It's the same orthodoxy that the reformers taught in the great Protestant confessions and catechisms expressed. sans the gospel, which was the reason for the Reformation. Those are just the click to tweets. Those are just the click to tweets. First question, I need to bring him down here, because he needs to read this, because first question, I assume, from Lance English. So here's Lance, this is in honor of you. David, no doubt you have heard a zealous Protestant say to you, quote, Aquinas is not only irrelevant to Protestantism, but dangerous, threatening everything the Reformation stood for, end quote. You are a Reformed theologian, so let's set the record straight. Why is that popular, angry rant so misguided and misinformed? I'm sorry, it's, it's hard to say it with a straight face, because it's just... <laughs> woo. I you know I I imagine that uh Lance could have found somebody over at Chick Publications <laughs> that that would say those type of things you know um but they're not reformed and and they don't want to be reformed and they hate reformed theology and 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 stuff like that so who says this type of stuff? I don't know, but it's the whole point is, um, and I've been dealing with this with our brothers from Sacramento who, for the past couple of days, have been lighting up the straw man and just, there is a desperately dishonest misrepresentation. That's not what we're saying. That's not how I've ever approached Thomas Aquinas. And so when I see people, and I've done this a few times in my life, when I do debates, you can tell when someone's misrepresenting you. That's why you have to have cross-examination. And how many times in cross-examination have I unmasked straw man argumentation and left a person just sitting there going, "I die, die, die because that's that's what that's what the value of a debate is, and by the way, Aquinas was incredibly gifted at looking at any possibly disputed point and thinking. Of every possible objection to his own position you could ever imagine. Incredibly gifted. Now, to be honest with you, after the, about the fourth or fifth time, you go through uh, objection one, objection two, objection three, objection four, and then answer to objection one. answer About after, you know, fourth, fifth time, it starts getting a little... Uh, Repetitious, but it didn't get repetitious for him. Because <laughs> that's what most of this is. But wow, he was. I mean, that is a that is a skill you need to have in disputation. You you need to be able to see it from the other guy's perspective and go, okay, he might argue this, he might argue that. Oh, done that many times. Done that many times. Um so I know when someone has a weak argument, when they have to trot out the straw man, And that is all we be getting from the other side. <laughs> I mean, it is just constant. And, and, and you'll see it on Twitter. People on Twitter will go, who says that? Who is even suggesting that? And they get all huffy puffy and, oh, I'm just, just, just making up. A point by sarcasm and blah blah. No, you're not. That's your whole argument. That that that's what you've been doing from the start. You don't want to. You don't want to drag this out and start quoting the original stuff. There, there's too much of stuff in there to be quoting back at you. You know, you don't want to do that. And so that's what this entire article is. It's astonishing. It sets up this idea of popular angry, misguided, misinformed rants. That's how it starts. That's not the conclusion of the article. That's what the article has to say at the start. That is pathetic. How did this get past any beginning editing? I don't know. I mean, somebody, well, you know, he's, he's, He's the credo editor. That's how I got past it. (laughs) That's what happens when your editor is compromised. When your editor is prejudiced, then you're going to get this kind of ridiculously prejudiced material. But it starts with the worst possible conclusion. That should be the conclusion you come to after honestly analyzing the arguments. No examples given. It's just thrown out there. Popular... Angry rant. Aquinas is not only irrelevant to Protestantism, but dangerous, threatening everything the Reformation stood for. Okay, who said it? Where is it at? Did they, did they, did they provide some argumentation? Was there a specific issue that they were dealing with? Were they saying that um, uh, Aquinas' metaphysics used in defining and defending the doctrine of the Mass is uh, in opposition to Reformed theology's understanding of the Lord's Supper? Something less ranting than that? Um, so, you, you start off, and Van Drunen's response, response should have been, that is really a bad way to start this interview. It's, it's really not going to be possible to give a meaningful, balanced, and fair uh, presentation of even my side. He's, he's written a book, Aquinas Among the Protestants. Well, did you straw man all the Protestants in the process? That should have been the response. But uh, there's a lot one could say here, but I'll mention a few points briefly. One is that Thomas, whatever we, th- whatever we think of his theology... Was undoubtedly one of the most brilliant and influential theologians of the entire history of the church. Whatever we think of his theology that doesn't, doesn't your theology define who you are as a theologian? I thought so. was undi- undeniably one of the most brilliant and influential theologians of the entire history. Of the church, he made enormous contributions to the shape of Western theology. No one can really understand the Reformation without knowledge of the fifteen hundred years of church history preceding it. Stop. Wait. That's true, and it's irrelevant to what was just said. Aquinas is a part of that, and no one is suggesting that the Reformation just happened. I. I no one says any of these things. I, th- I have what is it? Sixty-five lessons, I think they're still available. Sermon audio? Church history? Somebody else had taken my church history lessons from way before that in Sunday school. And it posted them, and I think there were 57 of that one. Um did did we just skip over that? Did did we go from Augustine to Luther? No. We didn't, huh? Did, did, did I did I emphasize the importance of recognizing you? Know, you can't understand Erasmus without the Renaissance. You can't you've got to talk about Advantus? You've got and you've got to talk about how the reformers responded against the schoolmen. Um, there's a reason when when uh, when uh, Exerge domine the papal excommunication arise in Wittenberg? That Luther and his students go to the Great Oak and they burn the schoolmen in a bonfire? Yeah. That's, we we do talk about all this stuff. What? No one can really understand the Reformation without knowledge 1,500 years preceding it? Yep. And Thomas is one of the most important figures in that history. Well, he is thomas really was the best of the schoolmen in fact i was um uh saturday i forced myself out of um out of bed quite early I used to do this all the time the older i get the harder it is to do it <laughs> that, that that alarm goes off at like 3:15 in the morning it's just like oh man what what am I doing? Um, and it used to be easier to get out there in the dark. But, anyways, I did, and I was uh, again. I was climbing up the C- the Sears K Indian ruins uh, out near what we call End of Pavement (EOP) on Cave Creek Road. I had already gone down to Bartlett Lake and climbed back out again. So, if you know where that is. I was doing some hard riding. It's a lot of lot of climbing out there. Anyways, I uh, was uh, listening to books on Thomas Aquinas. That was did not help me go faster at all. I will admit that um, <laughs> did not keep the heart rate up in in any Skillet's much better for for uh, for getting down the road than than Thomas Aquinas. is. Anyway, um, I bet you Skillet never thought they'd ever be brought up with the context of it discussion of Thomas Aquinas but anyway uh, and I discovered uh, much to my uh, pleasure that Aquinas uh, took the same view on the words of dereliction Father uh, why uh, why have you uh, forsaken me he took the same view on the words of dereliction that I do you know I've, I've, I've said for years most of the sermons on that th- on that's, I think miss it. It's a quotation of Psalm 22. It is it's a fulfillment passage. It's not at the very point where the son is giving his ultimate obedience to the father. The father turns his back on the son. I know it's in our songs and stuff like that, but that's just not what the text is talking about. And lo and behold. That was Thomas's view. Yay! Am I am I stunned? Am I hurt? Oh no. I agree with Thomas. No. Duh. Why should I? It's irrelevant. It's it's an interesting factoid, but um, okay. So he did. Okay, so there are other things that we would have firmly agreed about. But let me let me mark that point and. Given how long this is going, and we're probably going to have to, because there's more stuff that I want to I want to look at in here, Um, and it's primarily English's questions that are just straw man, misleading, and I recognize them as a debater first and foremost, and as a professor of church history second. Um, But I want to I want especially the students. There are students at these seminaries who are getting hit with this stuff that never expected that when they went to the seminary in the first place. That's, what, that's what's important about this type of stuff. Uh, the fact that uh, Dr. Barrett has announced that he's completely reworking the PhD program at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which used to be known with its emphasis upon Spurgeon, but now... Classical theism and Thomas and central to all that kind of stuff. The emphases are changing. And there are a lot of students who are observing this. And there are those who have used certain channels to contact yours truly. And to say, please don't stop. You're our lifeline. This is what we're getting. We're not accepting it but we need to know why we need to be able to see why to be able to and that this is not the first time we have functioned this way (laughs) uh i just it's it's just sad that it's seminaries that you would would never have expected this to be taking place at it's one thing when students would come up to me as i traveled around the world and their universities which were you know havens of secular liberalism the dividing line helped them in those those contexts that's one thing this is a different context and so i think it's important because the the straw man misrepresentations inherent in english's questions need to be doused we need to take that boy back there and stick it in a big old tub of water put those flames out and um so we'll, we'll continue that process Um, but I want, I, I want to do something that will, that will drive my, um, my opponents batty, uh, to wrap things up. Um, and that is, this is the thing you all can't respond to and that's, and you know it, every one of you knows it. I'm going to go to Aquinas. I'm going to go to your sources and I'm going to expose your sources and I'm going to do it Accurately. I'm going to do it in a scholarly fashion. And if you sit there and say, well, you can't do that because you haven't read everything in compliance. No, and I'm not going to. At my age, I refuse to invest any more of the maybe at the outside 30 more trips around the sun that I might have in my life in that kind of activity. (laughs) I'm already investing too many in things similar. You can't do that because you, you're just not a scholar of Thomas Aquinas. You realize how Gnostic that is? You telling me that I can't read his own commentary and test it by the, word of script, by the Word of God? What does that tell us about you and where you already are? Ooh. Hmm. So, let's... Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Um, so, let's look at a, at a key text. A key text. I would invite you. It is available for purchase on Kindle. That's what I have in front of me. Get Aquinas' commentary on Romans. Okay? Aquinas' commentary on Romans. And look at some of the key texts. Key texts. What do you mean key texts? Well... When we deal with Thomas's descendants, or at least claimed descendants within the Roman Catholic Church, we will see that that article actually says Roman Catholicism did not exist until after the Reformation. That's interesting. That is definitely something I want to discuss, because when did Roman Catholicism begin? Well, I've given you my understanding of that, Fourth Lateran Council, 1215, the establishment of the Eucharistic sacrifice as the central aspect of Roman Catholic worship. You already have the papacy in place, but Dr. Van Drunen puts it past the Reformation. That really presents some really complicated questions as to what the Reformation was about, whether it's still relevant, things like that, but we'll get to that, we'll get to that. But relevant questions from Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Let's, let's remind everybody, of this text, Romans chapter four, just as David also speaks the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Then the quotation from Psalm thirty-two: Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed Blesses man whose sin, the Lord will not take into account. There's a variant there, but who ume lagiseta ume la errors some strong denial, will not impute. Sin, the Lord will not impute sin, is what the Septuagint reads at that point. So, most of you recognize this is the foundation of the question I ask Roman Catholics all the time, who's the blessed man? There is no non-imputation in Roman Catholic theology, so there is no blessed man. And I would, I would recommend, read, read Calvin's commentary on, on the text. And you'll see how he brings these things out. Here is Aquinas. Um, Then when he says, Blessed are they, he presents David's words containing the previous judgment and says that those whose sins are forgiven are blessed. Consequently, they had not previously have good works from which they obtained justice or happiness. But sin is divided into three classes, original, actual mortal, and actual venial. First, in regard to original sin, he says, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Here it should be noted that original sin is called iniquity because it is the lack of that original justice. By which in equity man's reason was subject to God, the lower powers to reason and the body to the soul. This equity is removed by original sin because after reason ceased to be subject to God, the lower powers rebel against reason and the body is withdrawn from obedience to the soul and subjected to decay and death. Hence, I was brought forth in iniquities, Psalm 51 five. In both texts, original sin is presented in the plural, either because the multitude of men in whom original sin is multiplied, or better, because it virtually contains within itself all sins in some way. Such original sin is said to be forgiven because the state of guilt passes with the coming of grace, but the effect remains in the form of fomes, or concupiscence, which is not entirely taken away in this life, but is remitted or mitigated. Second, in regard to actual mortal sin, he says, and whose sins are covered. For sins are said to be covered from the divine gaze, inasmuch as he does not look upon them to be punished. You covered all their sins, Psalm 84 3. Third, in regard to venial sin, he says, Blesses the man to whom the Lord has not imputed sin, where sin refers to venial sins, which, although light, if they be many, Man is separate and distant from God. The good Lord will pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, even though not according to the sanctuary's rule of cleanness. Second Chronicles thirty eighteen. These three can be distinguished in another way. For in sin are three things, one of which is offense against God. In regard to this, he says, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. The way man is said to remit an offense committed against him, her iniquity is pardoned, Isaiah 40, verse 2. The second thing is the fact that the disordered deed has been done and cannot be said not to have occurred once it has been perpetrated, but it is covered over by the hand of God's mercy and is held as if not committed. The third is the debt of punishment in regard to which he says, blesses a man to whom the Lord has not imputed sin, i.e. unto punishment. Okay, did you follow any of that? Hopefully what you saw is two interpretations. The second interpretation is about, again, still uses the, the three categories of sin that are completely unbiblical. They are traditional, they're not driving. It. And by the way, most of the texts that were cited. The good the good Lord will pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. Second Chronicles thirty eighteen is said to have something to do with venial sins in verse uh, eight. This is great tradition exegesis. It is similarity of words without similarity of context and meaning in the original context. So you cite it. it, has nothing to do with it, but you cite it. But that's the second interpretation. The first interpretation is that what you have, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, that's original sin, whose sins have been covered, that's mortal sin. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account, is. Vignelsen. Now, can I point something out to you? Thomas Aquinas wrote in Latin. And that is his focus. And so he is dependent upon the Latin text. The Greek term whose sins have been covered is hamartia. And whose sin or not take taken account is hamartia. There's no difference. One is plural, one singular. The point here is somehow, Aquinas looks at Psalm 32, as cited by Paul, completely, and this is the greatest theologian in the history of the church, and completely misses the central aspect of justification by faith that's right there in the text in front of him. Misses it. Just poof! Gone. Not even there. Nothing there. It becomes, arbitrarily, without anything in the context, without any exegesis, a discussion of the three different kinds of sin, which is a unbiblical innovation. Original, mortal, and venial. As a result, the whole question, who is the blessed man? Which would be so relevant To his own theology. Never touched. Never thought about. Never considered. It's just not even there. Now, I I just read you his own words. You can look them up. You can buy the Kindle book on Amazon. Okay? This is section 3... Back to the starting. It's I started reading at three thirty four. All right, I didn't skip over anything. I'm not misrepresenting him. This is how we saw the text. This is great tradition exegesis. So, what do we do with this? How do you sit there? and say that Thomas Aquinas is one of the greatest... And I know R.C. Sproul did the same thing. I would have to say the exact same thing to him. How do you say he's one of the greatest theologians that the church has ever experienced? When he's looking at the situation he is in, he doesn't see the gross, horrific, twisting of the gospel that is the papacy that is the the entire sacramental system as it's growing right in front that he has a part in developing and this is one of the greatest theologians of the church and when he sees biblical texts that are making a vital and important argument, the traditions that have been building up over the past 800 years blind him to the meaning of the text. Now, like I said, he was one of the... He's he's the best as a schoolman. But I thought we believed in post-tenebrous looks. After darkness light. What was the tenebrous? What was the what was the darkness? If he was the, the best we've got, and the Reformation takes place 250 years after him, did that darkness just come in the 250 years after him? There was this blinding flash of light in the middle of the thirteenth century, and then boom, it's gone. Is is that is that what's being said? I don't know. I don't know. But you see, we won't get a response <laughs> to Aquinas' missing the point of the citation of Psalm 32 by Paul. The illustration that he makes. This is central to the entire theme of Romans, isn't it? Ask Luther. Ask Calvin. Yeah, it is. But the greatest theologian misses it. Well, that doesn't mean he's, he's wrong about everything. No one said it. it was. I just, I just pointed out. Hey, he was right about Eloy Eloi Lama Sabakani. <laughs> Even though there's some of you that would disagree with him and me, that's fine. No, it doesn't follow. That he's wrong about everything. What it does mean is that when you take his metaphysics and demand that the doctrine of the Trinity be based upon it. You need to defend it by something other than simply saying, he was such a great theologian. You need to base that on scripture, not on his great fame and authority. And that's what you're not doing. Because you can't. And you know it. You know it. Some of you have had confabs. Get-togethers. Meetings. About me. About me? Huh. How weird. Because on all of this, I started off looking at John fourteen twenty eight. I didn't bother to open it up, but I could have quoted you what I said straight out of what? Forgotten Trinity, which was written between 1996 and 1997 a quarter century ago. I'm not the one that's changed. And I'm sorry if I seem bullheaded to you, but you've not given me any reasons to reconsider what I've taught all these years. And all, you can light these babies up and hide behind the smoke all you want. This is not going to cause me to change my views. Shouldn't cause anybody else to do it either really appreciate that straw man it's very useful to have okie-dokie there you go hour and a half yay and i didn't get through the articles, so i will keep that one in line because like i said the questions should have been objected to i would have objected to those questions um and i would hope that if that, that if the roles were reversed and you had just these horrific straw man misrepresentations, the other side, I would have said, no, 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 That's, that's not what they're saying. That's not what they're saying. But anyway, there, there it is. All right. Thanks for watching the program today. I think it's Thursday. Yes, it is Thursday. See, you know what my concern is? So much will happen over this weekend. That how do you ever continue on? You know, that's, that's, that's the hard part. Um, well, we'll try. We'll do our best. Um, one last thing. Wait, wait, wait. Don't don't hit it. Don't hit it. Fade it out if you did. Had you started it? I forgot. And this uh, this won't make any sense if I try to tag it on later. One last thing. Sorry. Uh, I have a tweet here from Matthew Barrett. And it's a quotation of Peter Sammons who teaches at Masters Seminary. It should greatly concern you if the trendy U.S. espouse would be unrecognizable or, even worse, condemned by a standard of historic orthodoxy. Now, let me stop for a second, because you, you can't see it. So, it should greatly concern you if the trendy U.S. be would be unrecognizable or, even worse, condemned by a standard of historic orthodoxy. So, evidently, Dr. Barrett is now the standard of historic orthodoxy, because he somehow would be able to know exactly what that would look like. We don't know exactly what he's referring to here, but we can guess because the next line is, Aquinas can help us stay faithful to the Orthodox Trinity. I'm sorry. Sorry. I said, Dr. Barrett, this is Peter Sammons, professor at the Master Seminary. It should greatly concern you. This is being quoted by Barrett, but this is Peter Sammons saying it from Credo Magazine. It should greatly concern you if the Trinity you espouse would be unrecognizable, or even worse, condemned by a standard of historic orthodoxy. Aquinas can help us stay faithful to the Orthodox Trinity. Rich. <laughs> it took 30 seconds to go. He's already already signed off. He's done. An hour and a half, and he's finished. (laughs) (laughs) Don't mess with the guy who's got the controls. Listen, Aquinas can help us stay faithful to the Orthodox Trinity. This is important. I thought about this this morning. That's why we need to do this. Don't, Don't fade out. Or you either. Aquinas can help us stay faithful to the Orthodox Trinity. what would you naturally expect to actually be the terminology that's used there? What, what should be able to help us stay faithful to the Orthodox Trinity? If this isn't the first thing you think of, I've got problems with you. Okay? Okay? And if your doctrine of the Orthodox Trinity is not clear enough from this, then we've got serious problems. Can Aquinas help you do it? Well, let me ask you a question. Let me, this is a question that every student should be asking their professors. Is there anything that is biblically mandated of Christian belief that Aquinas was the first person to enunciate? Is there anything mandated by biblical Christian believing everything that this word says, having the highest view of its nature as theanustas revelation, is there anything that is biblically revealed that Aquinas explains to us better than anyone else ever has? Is there anything we need to believe from Scripture that only Aquinas is able to familiarize us with? So so anything that's being promoted, are we saying that in all the early church fathers... There wasn't anyone that could do it like Aquinas. They all missed it. They, they didn't have as deep an understanding. Or how about post-Aquinas, since the Reformation? Think of the greatest theologians in the Reformed tradition. Do they say it in a way that Aquinas eclipses, he's better at? So, how is it that Aquinas can help us stay faithful to the Orthodox Trinity? And I had a conversation that was quite interesting. I asked, could Cardinal Ratzinger help us to stay faithful to the Orthodox Trinity? And now, now you need to understand something. Joseph Ratzinger was the premier of the Orthodox of the congregation of the faith. Congregation of the faith that what's called. Anyway, that's the modern term. Joseph Ratzinger was the premier, the head of what used to be known as the Inquisition. Ratzinger was a major theologian. A major theologian. Wrote many books. From a Roman Catholic perspective, top-flight-level theologian. If you don't know who Joseph Ratzinger was, or still is, he's still alive, he was Pope Benedict XVI, who resigned and gave us Francis, (laughs) and whose theology is very different from Francis, very, very different. But the point is, I asked a fellow Reformed Baptist, pastor, would you say that the Pope can help us stay faithful to the Orthodox Trinity? Why not? We can learn from anybody. That's what he said. We can learn from anybody. I think you see the issue. I think you see the issue. This isn't a matter of humility. Are you seriously going to suggest that there's something that this reveals that has been most clearly expressed in the history of the church by Pope Benedict the Sixteenth that we need to know? There's nobody in our tradition that's up to that task to say that with that level of clarity. Then sh- shouldn't we be reading all of... Uh, Benedict stuff, too. It's a lot of, lot of books. A lot of books. See the point now? I hope so. I hope so. For those of you in Bible colleges and seminaries where you're getting hit with this stuff, stay the course. Listen to the lectures. Take good notes. Pass the test. Doesn't mean you have to believe it. I survived Fuller. I survive fuller. You can survive where you are. If that's where God, if you feel that's where God has you to be, there you go, there you go. All right, glad I remember that. Uh, needed to need to throw that in there. Uh, so this time, Rich, we can go ahead and start the closing theme. We're rolling. Thanks for watching the program today. We'll see you next time. God bless.